A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. So that gets to another question, which is, is it your experience that LDS people do doubt? I, I think we feel like when we start to doubt, we're alone. I, I went through that same feeling, and I think a lot of other people do. Like, you, you get this kind of this sense that you're the only one in your congregation that's thinking. Right. You know. And you're bad for thinking right. that way. So is your experience that that's not the case? or? No, I feel the same way. I mean, I went through the same, I went through the same things where, and to a certain extent, even to this day, I, I, I still feel like there's real no safe haven out there where you can go and and talk openly and honestly about your doubts and your concerns. Certainly not gospel doctrine, you know. <laughs> I'm currently the gospel doctrine teacher, but I I try to create a safe zone in my class, but culturally the culture is so strong and the mores and the the taboos are so strong that people still don't feel comfortable in that context. Do you think we're a bunch of people that are thinking the same thing? Or do you think that we're rare? The doubters. The doubters? Oh, I think there's... I think there's... Uh, I think there's an evolution of faith going on even outside of our religion. I think there's a massive cultural phenomenon going on right now, even in mainline Christianity, where there's a, millions of people out there who think and feel the way that we do and aren't uh, sure where to go or who to talk to. And, uh, and uh, I see an online community growing and I, and it transcends our faith because there's these same questions in fundamentalist evangelical circles. So I think we're missing one piece to the puzzle here. Okay. Um, so you had considered, um, Christ from a historical perspective and had gone through kind of the deconstructed ideas of, of Christ. And I assume you encountered the idea at, well, yeah, reading airman that, um, you had to, at some point consider that maybe he wasn't divine and that maybe all of this was a construct of, um, you know, mm -hmm. human idea, but, what I want to know is, how did you convert to Christianity, or are you converted to Christianity? And and did you have an experience? Was there some powerful moment, or did you just yearn for a divine Christ? That's a a really good question um, because I read Ehrman and and Marcus Borg. Uh, he doesn't believe in a divine Christ. I don't I don't think, at least from what I read of him. Um, 
but I don't share Borg's viewpoint. I don't. I don't share Ehrman's viewpoint. I. I do believe in a in a divine Christ, and I just have to go back to those experiences as a child when I was pulled out of uh, some of the things that had enslaved me through a power that was be well beyond my own that transformed me. And as I was writing the book, um, those spiritual experiences, if you will, where you literally felt the hand of God give you strength beyond your own, uh, ideas that are bigger and better than you could ever come up with yourself. Uh, so I, I believed, I don't know. I, 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 I've just had so many experiences that intellectually, Parts of that story don't make sense to me, but from an experiential standpoint, they do. And so uh, I just chose to to believe because it empowered me. It goes, it's kind of back to the morphine example yeah. that, I, that I used earlier. Um, do you think that when you read the Book of Mormon, and you mentioned this, but I'm just mm-hmm. going to again revisit that, that was a conversion to Christ? That more than anything, that Book of Mormon experience helped you in that way? That was my first conversion to Christ. But Christ, I think, is someone that you meet over and over again in different ways. And uh, you experience Christ in in different ways and in in different phases. I I sometimes use the analogy with people uh, of the Santa Claus story. Um, you see, Santa Claus is very real to me. And the way I believe Santa Claus when I was eight is different than the way I do now, that I'm in my 40s. Um, but the magic and the spirit and what enlivens me is fundamentally the same, except for now it's better because I get to be Santa Claus. And with my faith, it's sort of the same way because my, I guess my theology, my faith is that God manifests himself through people, through proxies, through others, which includes me. And so as I channel or try to to manifest uh, or reveal Christ uh, to other people, um, I, it's very real and it's something bigger and better and beyond me or, or anyone else. I don't know if that yeah, makes that, any sense at all. No, it does. And I think that's really hopeful. So you're, you know, going back to the book, you self-published. What was the reception? And how did you sell the book? Well, I didn't really try to sell it. Uh, I I just sent emails out to a few people and uh, relatives bought a few copies, but then it became it became a pass along book, and and so then I started to have uh, the orders online just kind of took off, and uh, I never sold a ton of copies, but for a while it was uh, I I just chuckled because it was a, a number four national bestseller on the publisher's website for a few weeks. Uh, and, and, and I was looking at the demographics of where people were buying the book and it was all over the place, which was both terrifying and, and kind of exhilarating at the same time. But I've never really 
marketed the book. I've never set up a website. I've never really done anything to publish it because I just figure it'll fall into the right hands. And I really didn't write it. I mainly wrote it for me. And if there's a few other people that could pick it up and it can help, great. Right. So So what has been the feedback? Have you gotten a lot of feedback? Yeah, quite a bit. Um, And the, the feedback has been that it helped people find Christ. It helped people reconnect with him and understand him differently uh, and help them want, want to be a better person. Okay. So. Well, let's get into it. Okay. Let's get into the book because right. um, I read it and it's, it's not too long. Uh, you can pick it up and read it in a couple of days. You know, you could probably read it in a sitting if you had more time than I do. <laughs> if you were highly motivated. That's right. Um, and had a lot of caffeine. <laughs> yeah. One of the first, um, well, we talked about the first chapter of the book um, a little bit, those words, if it be possible, and that really you focus on Gethsemane. And I want you to explain the title of the book, Gethsemane. I mean, it's kind of self-explanatory, hard to say, but <laughs> self-explanatory. Yeah, it is. A- <coughs> Excuse me. It is hard to say. Uh, yeah, I, I just... I, uh, I just wanted a, a title that would make people think, what in the world does that mean? Um, <laughs> yeah. and, but it ties into the theme of the book, which is the thing that... I think all of Christianity has suffered from uh, propagandizing Christ. And however well-intended, uh, focusing on only his divine attributes and, and only the the best parts, uh, I think has done a real disservice to the reason why God manifested himself through a mortal Jesus. And so that's why I named the book is because people have forgotten about the mortal Christ, the human Christ, the one who, uh, begged to, to have the cup taken away from him. The one who was weak, the one, you know, who, uh, needed help, uh, for some reason, we in our faith culture and even in, in the larger Christian culture don't emphasize those things. And yet there's, I think there's some of the deepest lessons that can be learned uh, by focusing on Christ in his so-called weakest moments. So that's what I try to do in the book. Well, one of the ideas that, that I've heard expressed many times um, in church and, uh, you know, over the pulpit is an idea that Christ understands suffering and knows our suffering. There's a passage here in the book. I hope you don't mind if I read it. He knew what spiritual shrapnel feels like. He knew what betrayal, grief, loss, abandonment, abuse, death, and every other conceivable pain or sorrow felt like. Having this perfect fear, he rushed into the burning building to rescue us. He stormed the beaches of Normandy with us. He knew what all that pain would feel like. And it made him fear to the point that he asked if it be possible. And you really emphasize here this word fear. And I think that that's kind of unique in that perspective. I think we always um, assume that he understands our pain from a compassionate point of view, but to emphasize that he also understands it from a fearful point of view um, is kind of interesting. And it gets back to that, um, yeah, it gets back to that, 
that place of doubt. Can you talk a little bit about your perspective of fear in within the context of our church and our culture? Yeah, um, I think fear is frowned upon. I think it's viewed as a, a sign of weakness, uh, a lack of faith. Um, if you were faithful, you wouldn't be afraid, you wouldn't worry, you wouldn't have anxiety. Um, and maybe a better word if I was to rewrite the book might be anxiety, because I think we are an anxiety-ridden culture and, and people. So um, all I can say is that I, part of the reason why Christ, why Jesus um, and Christ was human is so that we would really buy into that, so that we would we we would say, yeah, well, uh, he he was here, he did have a body, he did experience these things for his mortal life, not just theoretically in some kind of metaphysical way in Gethsemane, but he he lived here, he he was one of us, um, so he had that experience plus the experience in Gethsemane, which I think lends credibility. To, to that theology, um, you know, he, he didn't just suffer as a proxy, but he suffered as a human being. Uh, and and fear, uh, I see fear as a foundation to faith. I don't. I for me, I can't comprehend how you can have faith unless you have fear, because there's nothing to transcend. There's no gulf to surpass. There's no. Uh, you know, there's just nothing to to transcend. And so if it's just something that you have to have to overcome, to have faith, then, it, then it's not a bad thing in and of itself. Okay. It's just a reality. It's just, it just is. So one of the other themes in the book is um, this idea of weakness not being a sin. And, and coming right out of this discussion about fear, you've mentioned that we are kind of prone to condemn weakness and assume that weakness comes because we are not of sin or, or right <laughs> yeah we're not uh, adherent enough or right you write in the book this the sin is not to be in need of strengthening or to have weakness the sin comes in failing to do what our savior did so humbly and meekly accepting divine help when when in need of strengthening as he did in gethsemane mm-hmm. so talk about that perspective of Weakness not being a sin, but being inherent. Well, I think the older I get, the more I realize that uh, there's so much of biology in in heredity and genetics involved in in our makeup of of who we are and what we do. When I was when I was taking care of my father um, when he was a quadriplegic. Uh, it it blew my mind because I spent so much time with him, and it blew my mind at the things he did that were exactly like me. Um, the the length of his femur and of his shins were identical to mine. Uh, from 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 his wrist to his elbow, exact same length. Uh, shoulder width, almost identical to mine. I mean, I, and in a lot of ways, I'm his genetic clone and um we're so hard on ourselves and other people and yet so much of who we are and what we do and how we think is 
it's part of our brain chemistry and part of our genetics and part of our DNA. And God created us with weakness. Um, God, I, I, in the book, I talk about this concept that God doesn't make mistakes, but he made us with mistakes. Um, and, and I think that's very true, that God created us as flawed individuals. And so if that's the way he created us, that's not the problem. That, it's, not, uh, it's not a sin to be flawed. Uh, that's, that's part of God's way of beckoning, beckoning us to have a relationship with him so that he can manifest his power and, and, and transform us and, uh, and know that he loves us in our weakness because he created us that way. Uh, there's scripture. I mean, that is kind of Mormon. Oh, Mormon e- five, either, either 12, 26, oh, either, either, yeah, there either you go. 12, six, you know, if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness that I can make their weak, that I can make weak things become strong. That general idea. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's funny cause it's right there in our, in our Mormon scriptures, as well as in the new Testament, it's, it's, it's there, but we it's tend there. to, Mormons tend to overlook that we are really hard on, Yes. On each other. We yes. don't like weakness. Yes, we, we are. Uh, especially on ourselves. Another theme in the book that I really enjoyed, and you write a very long chapter on prayer. Let's talk yes, about prayer. I apologize. No, no, that's okay. Let's talk about prayer because, and this gets back to um, everything that you were saying earlier. Your crisis, a lot of it had to do with not unanswered prayers unanswered prayers you were going to the lord you were having all of these issues at work and illness and everything seems to be falling apart and i'm sure you were pouring your heart out i mean it seems like you were really pouring oh, your yeah. heart out so what about prayer what what does prayer mean to you now and let's talk about it in the book because you 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 use christ as an example of how we can learn more about prayer you write in the book, I believe we had we have misinterpreted the words of the Savior, ask and ye shall receive, in a manner that transforms God into nothing more than a genie that sometimes emerges from the lamp to grant our wishes and sometimes doesn't. We focus on what prayer can do for us. On the other hand, we ignore the reconciliatory, transformative, redemptive aspects of earnest prayer, what prayer can do f- to us. So... Talk about that. And how did you come to that? How did you get to that place where you changed your perspectives about prayer? Well, uh, when I learned that everything I'd been taught in Sunday school just didn't work for me. (laughs) So, uh, and I really struggled when people would get up in in sacrament meeting or testimony meeting and, and say, well, I prayed for this and, and it happened. And I, I can testify that prayers are answered. And being a lawyer, I thought about causation and, and, and well, how could you prove that that, you know, how could my cynical lawyerly mind, well, how could you really prove that you prayed and X happened and therefore your prayer caused X to happen? Um, and, and, and it just, the whole concept bothered me. And so I went back, and, and, and that scripture 
of Christ where he says, asking you shall receive and it will be given to you, really bothered me because I had asked. And I felt like I had asked sincerely. And, uh, but I don't, I did not feel like it had been given to me. And I, that's where I got angry and, and started to think, well, this is all just kind of a bunch of BS, um, really, uh, because it just doesn't work. It's not true. But then I came to the, the, the understanding, at least in my mind, that it's not about me and it's not about getting what I want. It's about having the kind of heart that God wants me to have, which is to love. You know, God is love and God wants me to be like him. Therefore, I need to become love. And I, I talk about it in the book in more detail, but, but basically, for me, uh, there's really no point in praying uh, about um, stuff that's just kind of irrelevant and immaterial. Give me an example of irrelevant and immaterial. Um, I don't know where to work. Now, that's a biggie for a lot of people, but this whole, see, this whole concept of, of personal revelation is very deeply rooted and embedded in our culture, uh, which I think is a really dangerous idea because I've heard people do some of the cruelest, meanest, darndest things in the name of personal revelation and some of the dumbest things, some of the dumbest financial decisions, some of the dumbest legal decisions I've seen have been in the name of revelation. Well, God told me to do this and now my life's a mess, but I know God has a purpose for everything and he must, must have wanted me to do this. And sometimes I'll ask my clients or people who are in a mess, I'll say, well, well what if God didn't want you to do that? What if he didn't care? And, and they'll just get shocked. What do you mean? What if he didn't care? I thought uh, in kind of our our culturally narcissistic way, we think that the universe somehow revolves around us and that God, you know, God's going to give us a guidance like a Garmin or a GPS or something. And I, I just don't think that's how it works. Uh, really, I think God... You have to understand, I guess, my perspective of God. I think God is passionate about one thing, and that is teaching us to love and creating people that love. And so whether you work at McDonald's or work at Marshall Fields or you're a school teacher or a journalist, I don't really think God cares because... It kind of goes back to that old song, love the one you're with. I mean, wherever you are, whatever sphere of influence you have or whoever you run into, God just wants you to love them. And so if you see the world through those eyes, then you stop putting so much pressure on yourself to try to do what God wants you to do. Does God want me to go to uh, UVU, or does he want me to go to the University of Utah, or Harvard, or Yale, or Brown, or does he want me to study philosophy, religion? We kind of have these kind of narcissistic ideas, but when it's really quite simple, God wants you to love. And whether you're a janitor or the president of the United States, he wants you to love. And he doesn't really care about all the rest because they're kind of details. I don't know if that makes sense, yes. but but that viewpoint really helped make things click for me, 
And I stopped getting so angry at God for not answering my prayers. And my prayers started to focus more on my relationships, how I'm treating other people, how I feel about other people, and how can I process those feelings and transform, say, negative feelings into positive feelings and positive actions. And and trusting, having great faith, that all the other details really don't matter as much to God in the hierarchy uh, of things. I hope that makes sense. But yeah, that and that's, that's kind wonderful. of that's kind of what my chapter on prayer was about. Yeah, because otherwise, for me, prayer is just. Uh, I mean, it it it's a big lie. <laughs> you know, I'm sitting here thinking about my own prayers, and I think everyone who has ever prayed kind of combats that formulaic version. Thank you, thank you, ask, ask. You know, right. amen. Obviously, the nature of the formula has changed for you. Has the actual oh, yeah. act of praying changed for you? Do you spend more time, less time on your knees? Do you do you know what I mean? Yeah, Describe well, that process. of Has yeah, it changed? I've never been a really good prayer. I mean, in terms of ritualistic prayer. Um, but yes, I, I it. It, it has, and prayer for me maybe probably doesn't look like prayer. Well, that's interesting. Explain that. Well, prayer, prayer for me is, um, Marcus Borg calls it thin places. Places where you can go and not be distracted and get centered. Um... For me, prayer is a form of meditation, uh, a form of study, I guess, reflection. Um, it's not formulaic at all. It's uh, a, a conversation in my head. I don't, I don't get on my knees. I don't say these and thous. I, um, but I feel close to God and, and commune with God. Uh, and it's, like I said before, largely helping me process my emotions and how I feel about other people and my fears and my doubts. Um, but it doesn't look like or sound like what you would traditionally be considered prayer. And I'm very uncomfortable with, with public prayer. I mean, I'll do it, but for me, it just takes all of the sacredness out of prayer. Uh, it's just kind of a... A social custom or a ritual that we do, and and in in the book I talk about if you really study Christ and where he prayed and how he prayed, he he wasn't much for public prayer either. He he was always off, alone, away from people, isolated, and. Uh, I have to ask. Um, you're you know you're you're still going to church and still oh, yeah. plugging away and. That, yeah. that, that does come in conflict with much of what you hear at church. Uh, in terms of your children and your family, do you, have, has your language changed? Has your approach changed with your children? How do, you, how do you navigate the language that you hear at church, especially about things like prayer? Yeah. 
between your family and church or your, you know? Well, you know, my spirituality is my spirituality and it's different than my wife's and it's, it's different than my children's. And we, we pray together as a family. Uh, but the way I pray is different than maybe the way my kids pray or, or my wife prays. Not much. Uh, when you know when we pray as a family, it's uh, probably does sound like your traditional your traditional prayer, and I I don't have a problem with that per se. Um, but let's be honest, those. Some well, sometimes they can be very, very spiritual experiences. Uh, like the time we knelt and prayed around my grandma's death, my wife's grandma's deathbed. But most of the time, you run the risk of it becoming kind of rote, routine, and and trivialized. And that's there's this. So I've still not fully resolved, you know, with how I feel about prayer and especially public prayer and, and family prayer because it's very difficult to do it on a routine, ritualistic basis and and really have it mean anything. Yeah. Do your children know how you feel about prayer? Uh, my older, you know, my daughter in college, my older children have all read my book. Okay. And yeah, my my, my children in college and, and the teenagers have all read my book and they know how I, I feel about it. And spirituality, I think a lot is something you have to figure out on your own. And, and that's one of the problems with our culture is that we kind of have this mass-produced TV dinner spirituality, if you will, where it comes off the assembly line and this is what it should look like and this is how it should taste and this is how long you put it in the oven. And, uh, and with my children, I try to encourage them to find what works for them because your way of praying it's probably going to be completely different than my way of praying, but that doesn't mean your way is bad or my way is bad. We're all different, and we all speak a different language with, with God, and that's one of the wonderful things about God is that He understands us all, and He meets us where we're at, and He talks to us in our language and in a way that that, that we understand. So, so, yeah, my children know how I how I feel about prayer, and... and uh, I think some of them agree with me, some of them may disagree. You have a tree analogy in the book that I really appreciated, and I think it speaks um, specifically to the audience because right. generally we have a culture of knowing. Yep. And, um, and so it's really traumatic and startling for people to find themselves in a position of not knowing all of a sudden. Well, so the analogy I use in the book is an experience that's true that happened to our family. We, we have a family cabin in... Uh, Island Park, Idaho, up near Yellowstone Park. And uh, for years, there was this very, very large, tall, straight lodgepole pine that was situated right on the right on the bank of a creek that, that ran by the, ran by the uh, cabin. And one time, the family was there. A microburst wind came by. The, the wind lasted just a few seconds. And this tree that had probably been there for 100 years or more just immediately toppled over and fell uh, onto the cabin and uh, was completely uh, uprooted. And in the book, I compare that tree to those who've been kind of raised along the mainstream culture of the church. I think there's a danger in a culturally developed faith. I think people who have a culturally developed faith 
in a culturally based faith uh, are just like that tree. They're in danger of not having very deep roots and, and they're in danger of when, when, um, when, when something challenging comes by of toppling over. Whereas those who are on the outskirts <laughs> who have to dig a little deeper to get their nourishment and dig a little deeper into the soil to um, find their strength and their foundation tend to tend to do better and so uh, I for one have taught my children to question to not just accept everything at, at face value and to use their brains use their intellects don't just go along with the mainstream because I know when they get out in the world with the internet and information as readily available as it is, that they're going to have a they're going to have a crisis of faith sometime, some way, someday, and they might as well learn now to sink their roots deep into the soil, and and not rely on this sort of artificial construct that the church and its culture, especially here in Utah County, creates. Now that's not to say the church is a is a bad influence or a, or a bad thing. It's just that you can really run the risk of being like that that tree. Can you give us a, an example of <clears throat> one of the ways that we can sink our roots deep? Because, I mean, you've talked about the formulaic things. Pay, what was it that you said? Oh, pay, pray, and obey. Pay, pray, and obey. If you go to the church, that they tell you the way to sink your roots deep is to pay, pray, and obey. So... But that tends to be cultural, too. And, and it comes off in all of these really mm-hmm. funny little silly things. Like, you have to do your visiting teaching. And if you're, if you're doing your visiting right. teaching or your home teaching and you're, you know, accepting all your callings and you're going through all the formulas and you're doing... But you're, I think, what we're getting at this conversation is getting at something different. So how would you tell your children to sink their roots deep? Questioning. But how else? Yeah, not being afraid to question. Understanding the priorities of Jesus. Okay, like what? What are the priorities of Jesus? Well, was Jesus more concerned about temple attendance? Or was he more concerned about uplifting the downtrodden, the poor, and the needy, and spending time with adulterers and uh, publicans? Um, Really, we don't find Jesus in the temple very much. And when we do find Jesus in the temple, he's either setting the the people there straight on doctrine when he was 12, or he's overturning the money uh, changers uh, for perversions that he he saw in the the temple. Uh, Or, you know, he's there healing the sick... Uh, which I find is a beautiful story about Jesus, where he takes the 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 the, the culturally despised those who were by Jewish law and custom unclean and unworthy to be in the temple. He doesn't just heal them, but he takes them into the temple to heal them, as sort of this very powerful teaching point about externalities versus internalities, you know, internal motivation versus extrinsic motivation, and. So I, I think part of it is, is understanding and sorting out and having the courage to live the priorities of Jesus, which means that you have the courage to be motivated by the right things, not by 
that phone call at the end of the month, have you done your, your visiting teaching? But if you genuinely feel that your family is okay and they don't need a visit, then don't go see them. Um, so looking at your motivations for doing things, because that's one in my, my big concern for our culture and our people is that we are so externally motivated that it, that our, our Christian acts are always because of the power of the social construct in which they occur, subject to question as to our motives. For example, uh, if I'm the bishop and I go see someone who's sick, uh, they could always question whether I'm doing that because I love them and care about them or just because it's my duty and I'm the bishop. Whereas if I do random acts of kindness and just sort of show up at the doorstep of humanity, unassigned, uh, outside the context of any church calling or assignment, and I just show up, then the person has to step back and say, well, they weren't here because they were my leader. They weren't here because they were my home teacher. Could it be that they really care about me? <laughs> and and so it's those sort of things, acting, having the courage to act outside of the social constructs. I think one of the, and this, I might be completely alone on this. I think one of the hardest things about our culture at least for me, is this this culture of if you're not somebody, you're a nobody kind of a thing. I don't know if that phrase resonates with you or makes sense. I've often told my wife and my daughters, um, my oldest daughter, it would be very hard for me to be a woman in the church um, just because when you're a man in the church and you're not somebody, you're kind of a nobody. And I know there's a lot of men out there who feel like nobodies because they don't have that big calling. They don't have that flashy resume, you know, that, that sort of thing. And unfortunately we, 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 we kind of speak lip service to everybody's important and every calling is as important as the other, but we all know that, that when a certain leader walks in the room, everybody stands up and they don't, they don't do that for me. They don't do that for you. And and I and I was talking to a friend uh, who really has a hard time during general conference um, with just some of the, for lack of a better term, leader worship that goes on in our in our culture. And and I gave him this analogy. I said, it sort of feels like this, doesn't it? It, it feels like. You're, you're genuine, you're sincere, you want to go to the Louvre in Paris to see the Mona Lisa. You get to the museum, you have to pay to get in, and, uh, and you get inside the museum and, and you're immediately met by the tour guides. And the tour guides are talking about how they know that this is the only museum that has the Mona Lisa. And they know without a shadow of a doubt that the curator of the museum has all of the keys to the museum. And they know without a shadow of a doubt that um, that no one can behold the Mona Lisa unless they come to this museum. 
It is the only museum on the face of the earth that has the Mona Lisa. Well, all of that's true with regard to the Mona Lisa, but in my view, completely irrelevant because I came to the museum to behold the Mona Lisa, not the tour guide, not the keys that the tour guide has, uh, not the keys that the curator has. I respect all of that, and I recognize all of that as necessary. I recognize all of that as as part of the function of the museum, and I do recognize that the museum has the Mona Lisa. But in the scale of importance and my mission, my purpose, why I'm there, I'm there for one reason really and one reason only, and, and I'm there to behold the Mona Lisa. And... I use that analogy with people who are thinking of of leaving the church um, because I say, you know, there are certain realities that that are realities and they can be frustrating to constantly be bombarded with. Uh, But if you if if you can somehow in your mind um, put them in context and, and realize that that's just the museum being the museum, and those are just the tour guides being the tour guides. They're doing their best, uh, however misguided and, and overbearing and uh, what have you uh, they might be. But you can still see the Mona Lisa at the Louvre. And, of course, the analogy I'm using here is that the, the Mona Lisa is... Uh, for me, Christ. Um, And the tour guides may not be the very most knowledgeable people on earth about the Mona Lisa. There may be people outside the museum. In fact, there are people outside the museum who know a whole lot more about the Mona Lisa than some of the tour guides. And some of the tour guides are great, (laughs) especially the ones with the German accent. I like the ones with the German accent. That's one of my one of my favorite tour guides. But I'm told we're not supposed to have uh, favorite tour guides and less favorite tour guides. But there definitely are some that are more favorite than than others when I go to the Louvre. But but I hope that analogy makes sense and and, and resonates with some people. Um, you know, uh, I, I I I hope it does i hope it's i hope it's helpful some people have told me that that's that's a helpful analogy uh, and that's how i cope with everything in this strange weird culture that we live in is that you know i view myself as a christian who worships with mormons and i view our mission as christians um to be bigger and broader than just our culture itself, if that makes any any sense at all. And what God's purpose for me in my life is, is to love. And if I fulfill that, that purpose, um, I can cope with almost everything else, including crazy tour guides. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, so let's go back then to, um, I know, the, the, the language of the church, because I was raised, as, as well as I think most people, to bear testimony and to say I know. Yeah. And at some point in my own life, I looked back at all of those I knows and tried to find 
like the origination point. How did I know that? You know, when, when I, I just always started saying that. As a small child, I went up to the pulpit and said, I know this, I know that. Um, but it was very, very culturally influenced. Can you just talk about your feelings about that language in contrast to where you are now? Oh, absolutely. My kids and I, we had a great discussion about this the other night after testimony, after Fast Sunday. And uh, my teenage son uh, said, you know, Dad, it really bothers me that people say, I know, because number one, I don't know if they really know. And number two, I don't really know. And how do you know? And so we had this discussion about, well, maybe that's asking the wrong question and that's completely irrelevant. And again, it gets back to the priorities of Jesus. Uh, the, the culture of the church emphasizes right belief over right behavior, meaning what you believe ha has a relationship to your salvation, whereas Jesus uh, wasn't so caught up, I don't think, in what you believe, but for him, gracious behavior and right belief or right behavior was more important than right belief. So in this discussion with my children, I said, you know, as a lawyer, if somebody gets up in court and as a witness, which is what you're supposed to do when you're bearing testimony is to be a witness. If someone gets up in court and says, I know that such and such is true. That's very unpersuasive, you know, to a jury. It's just not, it's not persuasive. What's persuasive are facts. I was with John on Saturday night. John walked into the convenience store. He got a call on his cell phone. He was on his cell phone for 15 minutes. Here's his cell phone. It says that he was on a call for 15 minutes at that time. I witnessed him on that call. Uh... That's a lot more persuasive, laying the facts out and letting people draw their own, own conclusions than getting up there and saying, I know John is innocent. And, and to me, it's the same way. There's a problem in our language in the church with this I know culture, because first of all, none of us really know. None of us know anything. We're just human beings. We're just human beings. Um, we think we know stuff and, and we really don't. And I think what matters more to God is... Uh, the facts. Um, I was sick. Um, I felt abandoned. I struggled with it. I was angry at God. I swore at God. I raised both my middle fingers to heaven and yelled at God. <laughs> okay. But now I love God. This is how I feel about God. That's a lot more powerful, I think, than just saying, I, I know God lives. And I think we've got to break, somehow break down the barriers so people have the courage to be a little bit more intimate and get away from this culture of I know, which to me is kind of, you know, it's kind of pious and it's kind of pharisaical. Um, you know, the Pharisees had contests about who knew the most and who was the most knowledgeable. And in their culture, knowledge was supreme. Uh, the people that were respected were rabbis. And um, so I, I really do have a, a hard time with this I know culture. And, and uh, I, I, it's, it's one of those things on my list of things I'd like to see change. <laughs>
You were king for a day. If I was king for a day. If I was pope for a day. <laughs> Wait, that's the wrong religion. Yeah. If I was prophet for a day, I guess. I would make everybody stop using that language. You would have a proclamation of no more I knows. That's right. <laughs> yep. Okay. Well, let's move on then. Um, one last thing I really want to cover in your book. Um, you you refer to this thing as meta-suffering. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Meta-suffering. I just made that up. Yeah. <laughs> um, you also call it spiritual suffering. Yeah. But I want you to talk a little bit about that concept. Um, I, I I think it's, it's compelling because um, it gets to the, the heart of doubt. But can you talk, describe spiritual suffering? Yeah, so meta-suffering is the word I made up and, and came up with. Since I was writing this book to myself, I figured I could make stuff up, right? <laughs> um, so meta-suffering meta was suffering about why you're suf suffering. You know, I had a very serious disease. I had lung disease. Uh, but eventually I got to the point where I really didn't even care about my lung disease. I was just angry at God and wanted to know why everything I'd been taught and everything that I believed was wrong and, and didn't work for me. And so it's that kind of suffering uh, about your suffering. I don't know how else better to describe it. It's kind of suffering in the bigger picture, suffering at, at the 80,000-foot satellite view as opposed to being in the throes of a disease or a particular trial. And if, and if God's omniscient, and omnipotent, um, why does he just sit here and watch me suffer? Do you look at the spiritual suffering that you that you went through as as difficult or more difficult or less difficult than the physical suffering? Do you is I, it all one thing? Or I think the spiritual suffering was absolutely harder. Really, because I still suffer from lung disease to this day, but I don't suffer from you know, the spiritual suffering that I, that I once did. Um, I found it immensely harder than, than having lung disease. That's interesting. I, I mean, I don't know how much I can really segregate those, but, but I, I would think that the spiritual suffering or what I call the meta-suffering was much harder for me. I think it's really important that you said that because um, doubt is incredibly traumatic. I experienced it differently than other people because I had a really big support group. I had family and friends that I could talk to and really vent to, and I felt community. But I think a lot of people don't, and it, uh, so many people really are in pain. In terms of the community that, um, that we have built in our church, that is one of the hardest things for people to lose is community. They feel isolated in their doubt and they feel alone. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I spend hours and hours with people. I don't know if it's because I'm a lawyer and people feel like they can come to me and talk to me in confidence about things that they just don't feel comfortable going to their, their stake president or their bishop about. But I've, I've spent... Um, I, I mean, dozens, hundreds of hours maybe with people who are going through what I would consider spiritual suffering. They feel isolated. They feel angry. They feel alone. And the, the, 
the biggest thing I found to help people is to just listen non-judgmentally and in fact encourage them to process their feelings you know how do you feel about God right now what do you want to say to him what are you thinking um, how do you feel about this church leader and just let it out and then how does God feel about how you just felt and people are really hard on themselves people are really judge judgmental um, but, but boy, I think it's important that they, they have somewhere where they don't feel alone, where they feel safe and, and they can talk about these things. Cause if they, if they don't have that place, then they, they leave the church and then they never leave the church alone. Um, so, and, and, and that's fine. I, I don't, I don't have a problem with people attacking the church. I just feel sorry that they're miserable. I just feel sorry that they're miserable. And it doesn't have to be that way. You can have doubt and still be happy and still be a member of the of the church. Can you have doubt and be happy and not be a member of the church? I think so. Yeah, I think there's lots of happy people who aren't members of the church. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can. <laughs> okay. Our time is up. But I wanted to say thank you. This has been a great a great uh, couple hours and I enjoyed the book it's Gethsemanesia I ordered it off Amazon if anybody's interested short read but a good read and um, we've uh, been joined by again uh, Dan McDonald and uh, thank you thank you I appreciate it come the fount of every blessing to my Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. Let the